You're listening to the Crossroads Grace Podcast, a podcast of Crossroads Grace Community Church. To learn more about our gathering times and ways you can get involved, check out our website at crossroadsgrace.org. Good to see everybody. Good to see you. Hey, my name is Brian. I'm the lead pastor, and uh, my son just left for Hume. Any of their parents excited for their kids to be gone for a week? Just, just me. Okay, that's all right. All right. Hey, good to have you guys with us. Hey, my, uh, I just want to let you know our mission statement here is that we exist to lead everyone to discover Jesus and follow him fully. What does that mean? That means that we believe every person should have at least one person in their life that they're talking to about Jesus, sharing their faith with, inviting them to church. So Maybe they'll discover Jesus, follow Jesus, and lead somebody to do the very same thing. That's why we're here. Uh, so grateful. Now, Lou, thanks so much for being our online chat host. Appreciate you so much. If there's anything that you need online, she's going to be there for you. Put some links in there in just a few minutes, and so uh, make sure you connect with her and say hi to her. But next weekend, for all my dads out there, it is Father's Day weekend. Next week, we're going to have a whole lot of fun. Can't wait to invite you. There might be some meat involved, so just a little heads up on that. So, yeah. So, uh, and because of that, we are going to be starting our brand new series called Grab a Fork. So, meat, fork, get it, okay, it all comes together. It's going to be a great series. It's going to be an opportunity for us to learn what does it look like for us to grab a fork and be able to feed ourselves? How do we grow in our faith and do so, not just so that <clears throat> I'm your sole uh, opportunity to learn about Jesus, but that you're doing it on your own, too. So, we want to help you do that by our series called Grab a Fork, and then obviously to celebrate dads next week. So, it's going to be a great time. Uh, as Pastor Dan mentioned, though, this is the last week of our series called The Wilderness, and it has been a tremendous journey through the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And we just haven't been, like, reading it and just kind of say, oh, it's a good story to know, but we've been digging deep into it to find the true nature of how Jesus was tempted, and then ultimately, what does that mean for us? How does that affect us in our lives? And so if you're just tuning in, or if you just may came for the first time today, got to meet some people that came for the first time today. If that's you, just hang tight. I'm going to pull you up to speed on where we've been. Don't forget, Lou's, you're going to be there. If you have any questions there for our people, you can answer those right now. But let me pull you up to speed in that we find the wilderness story of Jesus in the first three Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, there's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the first books of the, Old Te- of the New Testament, and they explain the life of Jesus. And we've been specifically looking at Matthew chapter 4, for our account of the wilderness journey that we see. So if you have your Bibles with you, Matthew chapter 4 is where we'll be at. And then also at the end of service, we'll be at Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if you want to have both of those ready, it'd be a great time to do that again. Lose if you put that link in there for me for both those spots, that would be great. But all three of those gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all start with the same place in Jesus' ministry when it comes to the wilderness. And it begins by Jesus being baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan River. And in that moment, it marks the beginning of Jesus's ministry for the next three and a half years. And in that moment, God the Father from heaven speaks from heaven and says, you are my son whom I love, in you I am well pleased. It's a pretty big moment in time when when Jesus is talked to and by the Father from heaven, the, the, the Holy Spirit comes on him like a dove, huge deal. But no sooner had Jesus come up out of the water Then we read in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So, uh, Jesus is in the the wilderness for 40 days. 
and he's fasting without food. And it was at the end of that time that the scripture tells us that he was hungry. Makes sense, but there's a little bit more to it because Jesus had gone without food for over a month, 40 days without food. So he, there was more to than just being hungry. He was fatigued. He was exhausted mentally, physically. He was drained. He was starving without having food that long. He would have been in pretty bad shape. But it's in that moment that Satan chooses to pounce on him. He had been waiting for a moment to, to tempt Jesus, and he says, this is the perfect time. He is tired, he's hungry, and he's alone. And my friends, I won't go any further without telling you that this also happens. This is exactly what Satan's going to try to do in your life, too. He will oftentimes wait for your weakest moment in before he attacks you. He's going to wait, parents, he's going to wait until that you've been kept up for the seventh night in a row and you're starting to smell colors that you are so exhausted. You've never been in those moments, right? He'll wait until you are beyond frustrated at your job or with that coworker that will not stop annoying you. Uh, students, he's going to wait until you're on that team and, you're, and your, your teammate is just driving you nuts, going to send you, say, a little bit, one more snide remark and then he'll attack. He'll wait, couples. He'll wait until you both are super exhausted, completely stressed out before he attacks your marriage. Because I'm just going to tell you, Satan is no slouch when it comes to timing his attack. He's smart. He will wait until you are at your weakest, not your strongest, your weakest, to attack. Because he knows at that moment, you'll be more, more apt to be able to, to move against God and to sin. So this is what Satan does to Jesus. He waits till he's tired, he's hungry. And he's alone, and then he tries to attack him, he tries to tempt him. And it's then where he unleashes this deviant scheme to try to get Jesus to sin. He does it three times. We looked at three different temptations in the wilderness. We've already really covered two of them so far. The first one that we found was actually the temptation of being relevant. It was a temptation of being relevant. Satan wanted Jesus to turn some rocks into bread and it was his most, to, to provide for his most basic need. Remember, he had been hungry for about 40 days. So he says, hey, just turn some rocks into bread. But by doing that, he would have been overlooking the deeper desire that he needed, the more dependence that he needed to have on God himself. So, so Satan was tempting Jesus to just make yourself happy, Jesus, instead of remaining holy. And Jesus doesn't fall for that trick. Instead, what Jesus does is Jesus chooses reverence over relevance. He chooses to revere God Instead of, be, instead of being relevant to what the world says, oh, just make some bread, make yourself happy. No, no, he doesn't do that. He chooses to revere God. He wants reverence over relevance. That was week one. But then last weekend, Pastor Dan did a fantastic job looking at the temptation of being spectacular. And we, we say that because Satan wanted Jesus to throw himself down off the temple and have angels come down, swoop down, save him before he hits the ground in this spectacular show. But this spectacular event would have destroyed Jesus' ministry of humility and reliance on God and not himself. Which is why I love when Pastor Dan said this last week, and he says, to live a truly spectacular life, we need Christ-centered humility. We need to see, what we need to see is we need to choose Jesus' humility over the spectacular. Because humility in Christ is always better than being a spectacle in front of man. So those are the first two weeks that we looked at. We looked at relevance, and we also looked at this idea of being a spectacular or being a spectacle. But today, we're going to look at the third temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, found in Matthew chapter 4, and we read about it starting in verse 8. So if we jump over there, verse 8 says, again, 
the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. So here we read, Satan, it says, it says that he took Jesus up on a very high mountain to be able to tempt him. History now calls that mountain the Mount of Temptation. But its actual name is Mount Coratania. Coratania. It's a mountain about two miles northwest of the town of Jericho in the Middle East. And the name Coratania is actually a mispronunciation, though, of the Latin term Quarantina. Quarantina. It means 40, the number of days that Jesus would have been fasting in the wilderness, Quarantina. Now, if all of a sudden you're starting to feel something well up inside you, triggered a little bit, thinking about the past few years when you hear that mountain name, yes, that's where we get quarantine from, Quarantina, where we get quarantine from. But now on the top of this mountain is a Greek Orthodox monastery that you can climb up to be able to go see if you'd like to. And additionally, history believes that this is where the first temptation of Satan tempting Jesus to turn rocks into bread, if you remember that, that it took place on this Mount Quarantina as well also. Because it said, if you remember back to the scripture, it says, again, Satan took him to a very high mountain. That's Mount Quarantina. Now, Mount Quarantina, though, is, is, is what, what happens is we see Satan try to, once again, use this opportunity to, to convince Jesus of something. And what he's trying to convince Jesus of is that what the world offers is greater than what God offers. E even though the craziest part of this whole story is that Jesus helped to create everything that was in front of in that moment when Satan was showing him. Now, let me, let me explain this. Paul kind of describes this very clearly in Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians 1, it says, For in him, now the him is Jesus, in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. So, so Paul would describe it that way in Colossians, but we really don't need to go any further than Genesis chapter 1 to understand this more. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So Jesus was literally there when everything was created and he's responsible for it all. Yet Satan is standing on a mountain that Jesus created and is pointing to everything that was already his and saying, hey, Jesus, it can all be yours, man. It can all be yours. Now, let me try to explain this a little bit in a different way. So, so ladies, if, if you understand this, ladies, if you've ever had a, a sister before, let's just say that your sister comes up to you one day when you were younger and says, hey, hey, listen, sister, I, I, I want to I show you something. I've got something to show you. And so she leads you down the hall into a room in your house, opens up a closet, and there she says, my dear sister, I love you so much. So here's what I'm going to do to you. I want you to choose anything you like in this closet. I'll let you wear anything you want here in the closet. The only problem is, is that you're in your room looking in your closet at your clothes, right? Right? They're already mine. Of course, I'm going to wear them. They're mine. Any ever had a sister do that to you, right? Right? So it sure seems like Satan is simply showing Jesus his own closet right here because Jesus made it all. So doesn't he already know that it's, that it's his? So, so you might be thinking to yourself, well, this is the easiest temptation of them all. 
like, all you got to do is just, hey, Jesus, just tell your sister, Satan, to get out of your room and butt out of your life. We're over. That's it, right? But as we've seen time and time again in the series, there's something underlying going on. There's a deeper motivation that's happening here because what Satan thought was that perhaps Jesus would be more intrigued, more excited, more, more devoted to creation instead of the creator. Very reminiscent of what Paul would tell us in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 25. It says, they, which by the way, we're they, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and created things rather than the creator. So Paul is saying that there is a temptation to love what God created more than God. And this is very, a very consistent temptation that Satan gives, I believe, to us too. It's the thought that what the world offers is greater than what God offers, or God at all. And what this all boils down to is one word, and the word is power. It's the thought that, that to really be satisfied, we must have power and not God. And I don't think it's hard to convince anyone watching this or maybe listening to this later on that there might not be a greater influencer in this world than power. Because power has a way of changing people in a way that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And, and we don't have to become the president of the United States to understand what this power thing is all about because it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be even a great deal of power for us to get this. Even a little bit of power can change someone. Maybe you've seen this for yourself, like when you see somebody promoted within your company for work or something, like the second that they're given power, they can change, can't they? One day you're going to lunch at El Hardin with them, and the next day they don't even know what your name is or have time to, right? You know what I mean? Like, it's what happened here? Because the addition of power into the equation of our character has a way of changing us. I, uh, I remember when I was... Uh, I was, I was growing up in Rapid City, South Dakota. I worked at an ice cream shop called Armadillo's Ice Cream Shop. Now, are you ready to see me with hair? Yeah, one, two, three, here you go, right? Yeah. Whistles are allowed, it is fine, yes, yes. Sometimes I will just rub my hands through my hair, a little fantasy, you know, from phantom pains, you just never know, right? But this good-looking dude used to work at an ice cream shop, and it was great because I got to work with my best friend Rob. It was so fun, right? But I remember after I'd worked there for a little while, I was given the title of manager. It was this very interesting moment when although I still had the same splattered, ice cream splattered T-shirt as everybody else, now I had a little bit of power. So now I had the ability to direct people and make decisions and do the schedule. I had influence on the business. Granted, I was a senior in high school at a very small ice cream shop, but dude, I thought I was the CEO of like a Fortune 500 company in the moment. And I'll tell you, sometimes I screwed up and I became that guy, you know, when it, with my fellow employees, but, but it was my first taste of having some power, some influence. But, but maybe you've heard this like phrase before, right? This, this idea that it's a great phrase. It's the, that with great power comes great responsibility, 
Okay, it's from the, the great theologian. It's from Spider-Man's dad. You know, like he, he said that, right? I, and I said it Spider-Man last service, and I had a guy like come up, and he's like, I got a problem with your message, man. It was, it was anyway, so it's okay. It wasn't Spider-Man. It was his grandfather. I get it. But anyway, but I think Spidey had something, right? That, that power, with power, it does come some responsibility. Because when power is used incorrectly, it can change a person. It can change someone to think that they, that they have more control than, that, than what they really do. It seems to give them the green light to treat people differently than they should. It even causes someone's character to be completely altered with just one boop, drop of power in their life. And I know, you're thinking, oh, that can never happen to me. Hmm? How about this? What happens to you and I when we go out to eat at a restaurant? Okay. So tell me that we don't agree with this, this old adage of business, right? You can even fill in it for me. The customer is always right. right. The customer is always right. We feel that is true, that we have the power to get what we want. After all, we're the ones paying for this service. So armed with this power posture, we use that power to treat the wait staff in ways that we would never treat anyone else. It's as if our booths at Chili's all of a sudden become these little thrones in which we sit on and dictate our demands and our desires from, right? More of this. Take it away, less of this, right? It's too cold. I don't like the taste of it. I just became allergic to green things. There is a hair in my food, and yes, it's my hair, but I don't care, right? As if this poor 16-year-old waitstaff person is responsible for your personal happiness in this moment, all because you have a little bit of power and the customer's always right. Right? Can you believe this? Lord Acton once said, absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is what Satan is tempting Jesus with. Power, absolute power. But it was predicated on one thing. Not sure if he caught it. Look in verse 9 again. Satan says, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. You see, Satan's qualifier in this moment, right, this qualifier that he had for them was Jesus had to worship him. He had to worship Satan. Now, this might seem a little crazy to you, right? This might seem like absurd. You might even think it's creepy because when we think of like worshiping Satan, we, all kinds of twisted things get in our head, and we're like, that stuff can't really happen, though. I mean, who really worships Satan, you say? Did you know recently that the Temple of Satan held a conference in Boston called SatanCon? About a month ago. Over 800 people attended it. The organizers were from the Temple of Satan in Salem, Massachusetts, and they claimed, they said, oh, we don't believe in a theistic Satan. Like, we don't believe in a realistic theistic Satan. They say their, their, their group is about compassion, injustice, everything you think of Satan, right? But check out what's in their main hall that they've erected in their main hall that they're in, in Salem, Massachusetts. Look at this picture, right? Can you notice that at the foot of this thing is not adults, but they're little kids looking up? Convention was sold out. Sold out at over a dozen breakout sessions that you could choose to attend. Here's some examples. It says some of them were BIPOC Satanists, practicing Satanism in Appalachia, deconstructing your religious upbringing, self-pleasure, sins of the flesh in self-pleasure, 
It had after-hours events that included a satanic ball, a drag show, a concert from the band Satanic Planet starring the temple's co-founder, Lucian Greaves. Evil, pure evil. But to the outside, they'll just say, oh, no, 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 no big deal. Nothing to see here. We're just an innocent group hanging out, wanting to talk about compassion and justice. But don't you think that's exactly what Satan would want you to believe? That it's just this innocent, no big deal thing. And he'd want you to believe that so he could subvert humanity and lull them into this unhealthy affection towards him. And, and, And guys... He doesn't need a temple or statue or a conference to do this. He can, and he does this all the time, every day. He wants us to worship him in the way that we spend our money, devote our time, how we treat others, how we view sex, the relationships that we get in, the way we value life. And the way that you worship Satan in these ways is not by saying, hail Satan, but instead worshiping creation over the creator, over God. And it's also pretending that both God and Satan don't exist. Instead, what we'll do is we'll make decisions in our own vacuum, out of our own emotions and our own desires. The famous book is called The Screwtape Letters. It was written by an author and a a theologian by the name of C.S. Lewis. Fascinating story. The story is a, it's a fictitious story about a demon whose name is Screwtape, and he's mentoring an up-and-coming demon by the name of Wormwood, and, and Screwtape was trying to teach him how to best tempt the human patient, as it's called. And, and we get to hear uh, Screwtape's words here. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Isn't that true? What Satan wants you to believe is that either he doesn't exist or to focus on him so much that you you forget about Jesus. And this is exactly how Satan operates. Why? Because it's the only thing he knows. Jesus describes Satan in John chapter 8. Listen to Jesus' words. He says, he says this. He says, he, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is a liar. So nothing that he says or that he does or he tries to convince you of will lead you to anything that is true. Because if it led to something true, it would destroy him. Because truth is only found in Jesus. So so Satan wants nothing to do with the truth because that would mean if truth was there, Jesus was there, and good and evil cannot coexist. Truth always wins. So to side with lies aligns you with Satan. To be on the side of truth aligns you with God. So this is why Jesus' response to Satan is is so very interesting. Uh, Look look at what he says in verse 10. In verse 10, he says, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. 
Now, if you notice what, what he said, Jesus said something very, very important. And what Jesus just said there is that he is choosing praise over power. Jesus chooses praise over power. He's choosing to worship God instead of worshiping himself. It's a redistribution of power from the power that I want, and instead I trust completely in the power of God. We have a tendency to believe that we must decide what is right and wrong, not God. We must decide what is good and pleasing. We are the authority on all that is moral and all that is good. We want what we want and not what God wants to give us. And it all boils down to a distribution of power. How much power do we want in our lives and how much power are we willing to give God in our lives? And that comes back to worship. Will we worship God or will we worship ourselves? And again, you might be thinking, PB, this is obvious. Like, duh, I'm not going to worship Satan. I'm going to worship God. But it's not as easy as you might think, you guys. Because as obvious as this may seem, did you know that Jesus' disciples, the ones that are even the closest to him, couldn't grasp the correct use of power? Yeah, it's, it's why I, I absolutely love this, this, this uh, chunk of scripture. I just love reading it. Uh, there's, a, there's a description in Matthew 16, a little bit further down. There's a description of Jesus is talking to his disciples one day. And he'd done this several times. This is like the third time that he's done it. And he says, guys, listen, I am going to be turned over to the authorities. They are going to crucify me. They're going to kill me. They're going to be placing me in a tomb. Don't worry, I'm going to resurrect three days later. And I'm going to help. I'm going to, I'm going to save mankind from their sins by my grace. And after Jesus says all of this stuff to all of his disciples, Peter, one of his closest friends, pulls him aside. He gets all bent out of shape. He pulls Jesus aside. And then listen to what he says in Matthew 16. Peter took him, that's Jesus, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Peter is all upset with Jesus for saying all this stuff about dying and resurrecting and everything, not because he was concerned about his well-being, but because of what Jesus, because of what Jesus said, it would have, what it, what it would have meant to Peter's power. Because Peter still believed that Jesus was become this king of Israel, he's going to overthrow Rome and become the head honcho and the most powerful person. And then, of course, Peter, being one of his best friends, would be one of his top officials and be very powerful too. So if Jesus dies, so does Peter's power. Which is why Peter had to try to put Jesus in his place. <laughs> but look at what Jesus tells Peter. Jesus turned to him and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Now, the word that Jesus uses here for get in the Greek is an interesting word. It's the word hupago, hupago, and it means go away. Just, just go away. Jesus is calling one of his closest friends, one of his closest disciples, one of the top three people he did all the ministry, called him Satan, and then he tells him, hupago, go away, because he knew that Peter was more concerned about power than praise. Believe it or not, Peter had the exact same motivation that Satan did for Jesus in the, in the wilderness in that moment. Because Peter wanted Jesus to flex his power, to prove that he was God so that in return Peter could have power. The same thing with Satan. So that's why Jesus looks at Peter and says, behind me, Satan, go away. Hupago. Now, how do I know that's true? Because Jesus uses the exact same word to Satan in the wilderness. Matthew 4.10, the 
If you go back there, Matthew 4.10 tells us, it says, Jesus said to him, Hupago from me, Satan. Away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He says to Satan, get behind me. Away, go away. Hupago, go away, Satan. Because it's not about a power trip. It's about the posture of praise. Jesus chooses praise over power. And the truth of it is that all of us will misuse power if it's not checked against God's desires for us. We will all turn into the power-hungry guy at the restaurant in all areas of our life if we're not careful. We just will. But when we turn even that, even our power over to God and understand, understand that it really, when that happens, we start to understand God's desire of what he wants us to do with a little bit of power that he gives us. The greatest use of power is when we filter any power that we've been given through God's plan and his purposes. Because properly used power will always bring God glory and it will never ever bring you or me to the center of the universe and be the most important person. Because to truly, truly, truly follow Jesus means that we choose praise over power. It means that we make ourselves less so that he is more. And when we do that, we start to understand actually what the power of God in our life is really all about. So this week, I want you to look in Matthew, Matthew 4. I want you to read verses 1 through 11 again on your own. Reread the whole wilderness account. But I also want you to encourage somebody that you normally wouldn't this week. And then lastly, I want you to think about using your influence, your power, just to help someone this week, to do something with what God has told you here today. But as we look at this, every temptation of Jesus over the course of this, this whole series, whether it was a temptation of relevance or the temptation of being spectacular, or the temptation of, of power, did you notice what Jesus used to put Satan in his place every time? Scripture. He used the truth of God's word to challenge the lies of Satan. Jesus used the true and right application of God's words, not to manipulate, and didn't manipulate it or contort it as Satan did in his interactions with Jesus. Because he, Jesus didn't need to do that because the truth of God will always set you free. Always. So to close out this series, I just want to do what Jesus did. I want to read some scripture to you. And just as Jesus did, he often used the, the book of the Bible called Deuteronomy to be able to refute Satan's attacks. I want us to read a little bit out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And as I read these verses in just a moment, I want you to grasp the magnitude of the power in God's word. And, and not just the historical power to when he's writing to the people of Israel, but ultimately about how he's speaking to us. Because in God's word, it has the power to show you that you and I can choose reverence over relevance, humility over the spectacular, praise over power. And as you listen to these words, I want you to think about the truth that God wants you to hear as it relates to the temptations that you might be facing today. Maybe it's individually. Maybe you're going through a really difficult thing. Maybe, maybe, maybe as a family, you're going through a really rough time. Maybe there's a tough marriage out there, a tough dating relationship right now. Or, or maybe you've got a big life decision right now and Satan is tempting you. Guys, I just want you to listen to God's word, his words of truth. And just let them speak into all areas of your life. So you may want to read them off the screen. You might just want to close your eyes and listen to me read them. You may have it in your Bible. I'm not sure what. I just want you to be able to hear God's word today. Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting verse 4. 
It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your heart. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did in Massah. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. I love this, verse 19. Thrusting out all your enemies before you. The Lord said. I don't pretend to know what every person is going through in this room or joining us online. Life's hard. It's unpredictable, isn't it? Especially when it comes to the wilderness. One moment you feel like, man, you're just riding on cloud nine. Things are going great, like Jesus getting baptized. And the next moment you find yourself wandering around in the wilderness wondering what in the world's going on. True in my life. But here's what I can tell you with 100% certainty. It's this. Jesus understands. He's been tempted. He felt pain. He's been disgraced. He said people that were closest to him turn, his, turn their backs on him, abuse him. And he's been in the wilderness. But in all those things and so many others, he came through on the other side without sin. And so we can trust that his way is best and that as we follow him, we can choose reverence over relevance, humility over the spectacular, praise over power, all because of Jesus. What we learn in the wilderness. Heavenly Father, God, I just lift up this time to you right now. Thank you for your word that is alive and active. For Jesus, who you gave to this sinful world to, to live amongst us, to show us what it's like to be, to be perfect in every way, despite being tempted in every way. And God, I know that there are so many people in the wilderness right now feel like they're lost, feel like they're wandering, wondering what's next. And God, I pray to have the other three services, that they would not be they wouldn't buy into this, I think, terrible cultural lie that says that, that God will never give you more than you can handle. It's not true. Your word tells us that we will never be tempted beyond what we can bear, but your word never tells us that we'll never be given more than we can handle. Why? Because if we could handle it all, we wouldn't need you, Jesus. We need you. Desperately. So as we struggle in the wilderness, as we wander in the wilderness, Help us to look 
for humility, for reverence, for praise. May we find it in you. You tell us you'll never leave us nor forsake us, so we trust you in that. And might the words of this song be a refreshing reminder to us as we prepare to go about our day, about our week. But may we not lose sight of the moment right now where we say, Jesus, we praise you, we thank you, we love you, even in the middle of the wilderness. In your name we pray. Thank you for joining us this week on the Crossroads Grace podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. If you are interested in getting involved in our community or want to find out more information, visit us online at crossroadsgrace.org. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads Grace podcast.